Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Anthony Gustin, the perfect keto man on the line. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brad. First things first, man, you're, you're, you're in Austin, Texas, and I'm just wondering, do you have to move to Austin, Texas if you want to be cool and healthy in today's world? I, I think it might be true. I think, it's, I think it's one of the only places where you can fit in that box, yeah. Ven- um, I think Venice is another one. Venice, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, that's, that's another one. Uh, but yeah, I think that in Austin pretty much right now. Boulder is kind of coming up a little bit. Um, Portland had its time, but now that's gone. So yeah, Austin's, Austin's a hot spot. Well, it is cool to see that you, you can feel the vibe of a health conscious community in all the places you mentioned, especially. And I think it's, it's really nice. It's important to have that support around you. And when I first moved to Northern California and was a triathlete, you know, I'd be out on the road and I was, I was literally the only person like enjoying the trails or the roads or the mountain bike trails. And now, you know, years go by and now, you know, the, you, someone, someone's pedaling down your street in the arrow position. You don't even know who they are. They're just like, oh, there's another triathlete going by. Is that a good or bad thing for you? That's great. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I think... don't know if you wanted to keep your little secret or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know people like, you know, you ask someone who's lived in Austin for 30 years when there was no traffic and the housing costs were, you know, a percentage of now. But, you know, I think progress in, in many ways is uh, is important, especially when it's, you know, an awakening to people enjoying nature, enjoying, you know, frequenting the healthy restaurants and things like that. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's great. And even since I've moved here, not even a year ago, I've seen a lot of change. And I've visited here for a few years now last four or five, six years been popping in and out for conferences and friends. And yeah, I mean, just seeing the change, like I said, the, the positive evolution of this place has been pretty remarkable. Well, same, same with you and your own personal story, since we're talking about background and, oh my gosh, I want to get into that a little bit because you were, you've, you've had this whole uh, previous life where you were kind of an unhealthy kid and trying to get an awakening of health and then getting into the alternative health scene. So can you take us through that, that whole journey that got you to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, I had a pretty, pretty rough struggle with health when I was younger. I mean, I was just typical overweight Midwestern kid, but, but not only that, just, I mean, pretty much every, every type of thing, gut issues, skin issues, crazy acne, a sweat like crazy. I didn't know how to fix that. Just like threw my shirt at all the time. Super embarrassing, super overweight, unathletic. Um, and it was frustrating. It like, I tr- I did everything that everybody told me to do. I went to the doctor, but all these things and they told me to do certain things didn't help obviously. Uh, and I pretty much had to find it out and figure it out myself. And I think that through that path of, of literally just reading textbooks and trying to figure out how my body worked and then trying different things and seeing, okay, did that work? Yes or no. Uh, let's try that again if it didn't. And then just con- I mean, that's kind of how I've approached life since then. I don't think that that journey ever really ends for personal health. But I mean, it's certainly a hell of a lot better than it was back then. Um, and so at that, at that point, I mean, this is even before I graduated, far before I graduated high school, where I had this mentality. I knew that I wanted to help other people kind of figure out that journey on, on their own as well. And so talking with some family physicians, I knew I kind of wanted to be in healthcare. And, and at that moment, that's all I really knew I could do is to be a clinician to help other people with their health. I mean, if we were talking like, late nineties, early two thousands, there's, there's not really the internet that there is today. There's not online businesses and social media and, and even blogs at this point. So 
I had there, there was no ecosystem where you could actually scale this type of stuff. And so fast tracked all the way through. So went undergrad um, three years through and then did I went to chose to be a, a chiropractor as and that was one of the one professions where I saw where the scope of practice was so large and you could own your own business and kind of do things your own way. And so one of the things my, my dad owned his own business when I was younger. And so one of the key things that he taught me was just to work for yourself. So that way you can do things the way you see them. And I've always been a little contrarian. So seeing that in health of like people say to do things one way and usually I figure out a different way to do them that works better for me. And so I figured that, I mean, working for a hospital kind of would have been the same paradigm, you know, working for a large clinic system would have been the same thing. And so taking the route of Cairo, I was able to have a super broad perspective on health of a musculoskeletal system, all internal stuff, and kind of see things outside and in and work on any of that stuff if I wanted to, as well as build my own type of practice. So that was kind of what I had envisioned even from high school. So fast track from undergrad all the way through. I did my Cairo and master's in sports rehab at the same time uh, and did that really, really quickly. Again, just went summer straight through and and doubled up the doctorate and master's program and was literally a walking zombie for three and a half years. So I think seven year total program that was in three and a half years. It was just, it's brutal. Um, I don't think I recovered from, from that for like two, three years, probably. Um, as far as just like adrenal burnout and just, just awful, awful energy. But here I am, I'm alive still. Um, but so got up. What was the, what was the rush? Uh, I think that wanting to help people and like not wanting to be in a point of, um, uh, again, still some things in school that I didn't really agree with that much. Nutrition was a huge part of it. Um, and, and I knew nu- nutrition for me was a huge part of, of how I helped myself and kind of reclaimed a lot of my health. And what they were telling us, even in grad school, nutrition was, was just a bunch of bullshit. And so this is one of those things where I, I didn't want to keep hearing that. And I said, okay, let me just get through this, <laughs> learn a lot of stuff I needed to learn, like become a good clinician um, fundamentally. But, but after that, like the real learning happens when you start actually working with people. And a lot of people think that once you're done with your degree, like you have all the tools. I think you have the, the very bare minimum to start helping people at that point. I get people asking me all the time and through Instagram and through emails and all that stuff like, well, what, what degree do I get so that I can help people the most? And the one I always tell them is whatever type of experience you can get is the best. And so that's even like helping out a family or friend and figuring out, did this work? Did it not work? Um, and, and just reading and consuming and then in using that and applying that and learning from doing is the most important thing. I think especially as a clini- clinician, I mean, you get, you get good by reps and that's, that's the only way I think you improve. Not only is, as far as like recognizing, okay, um, the patient presents with X, Y, or Z symptoms and, you know, I can whittle down a differential diagnosis of what may be happening very quickly. And then the history is way more efficient and then they get better way faster. And so this just refines and refines and refines over time and with experience. And that's what I wanted to get to is, is actually get my hands on people, start helping them and starting to make a difference. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a lot of things, but yeah, just completely blew through it. And uh, as far as speed goes and it was, yeah, I got out and people thought, I was uh, thought I was way too young to be doing what I was doing, uh, which was kind of hilarious. They probably still would. Um, but that was, I don't know, six years ago now, coming up in six years in December. Um, so I moved to San Francisco, opened up a clinic with another guy and started first with doing a lot of musculoskeletal work. So working with um, athletes and then working very soon after that with a lot of pro athletes in the area. Um, my thought process on that was if I could figure out how to make the best people better, that I could trickle that down to everybody else because... That's kind of like, I mean, thinking about 
NASCAR, when they tune up the fastest and best cars in the world, those type of safety improvements and driving improvements can then go down to all the rest of the cars. I think that the same mentality I have with working with pro athletes, same way. So we scaled that and I think came up with a really good system on how to you know, assess, treat, and diagnose musculoskeletal problems. So like if you had physical pain anywhere throughout your body. Um, and then after that, turned pretty heavily into doing more functional medicine stuff. So looking within and working with people who had you know, gut problems, skin problems, metabolic dysfunction, things like that, and helping them regulate that through different labs and interventions. Um, as I was doing this, um, I was having just a lot of the same conversations with people and then living also in San Francisco with people, I mean, doing some of the craziest stuff in the world, I realized that I could start scaling and helping more people. There was a time where I do a monthly review each and every month where I go through, ask myself, you know, in personal life and business life, like, you know, what's working, what's not working, where do I want to go, who do I want to be? And I did a math problem. I was up in Northern California just doing a little retreat. And even at the pace we were going, I was only going to impact, I think, 12,000 people in my life working one-on-one with patients the way I was. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I'm from a tiny town in central Minnesota that is four times as big as that. And like, looking at the tools and technology we had at that point, coming up with a better way to do that. So I started a website that gained a little bit of traction. And I was like, kind of opened up to the, the mindset that, okay, you can put something online and anybody on, on the planet can read it at any time. Like, people can learn from that forever. Instead of just, if somebody comes into my office and leaves... Well, that, that is pretty much done. They can tell somebody else about it and then they can come in. But it's, it's a very um, non-linear, non-exponential type of growth that we can impact people. And so um, I started doing more and more on that. And then the first company I launched is a way to kind of teach people about nutrition. Um, I had a lot of high-end athletes, like I was saying, and they were taking a lot of garbage supplements. And just me telling them to eat real food and whole food was just not enough. Like they needed to see that happen through differences in you know, products that we're taking and swapping stuff out. So a couple of other things that they were having were, you know, protein powders, pre-workouts, things like that. And so I created a line of products that was made with all whole food stuff and, and real food ingredients without any fillers or weird things. And they consumed those things. They go, oh, okay. And they started connecting the dots of, if I start eating real food, well, then I don't have to feel like crap anymore. Like, oh, I, I see what happens when you start eating real stuff and you start removing all the processed stuff. Like I feel way better. So I'm going to start doing that more and more and more. And so I realized that if you provide people with this sort of bridge, instead of just barking at them from the hilltop saying like, thou shall eat grass fed meat. Like that does that just, it works for some people, but not a lot of people. And so starting to create a bridge and, and looking at the spectrum of meeting people where they're at and starting to give them a little sample and a momentum and a feedback loop of nutrition and how it impacts them, then they can start biting off more and more and more. And I mean, I think we, we've been chatting about this before the show, but you, I mean, you're talking about when you first started doing a cold plunge, you could only do a little bit and then you could do a little bit more and then you could do a little bit more after that. And so this is one of those things I think a lot of people where they are in nutrition is that they can only start very small because of, you know, cultural reasons or habitual reasons or emotional reasons or whatever it may be for that person. And once you start chipping away at that, a lot of people get on this momentum of positive feedback, you know, okay, all of a sudden their skin starts clearing up. That's great. It's a positive thing. Now all of a sudden they don't have any bloating anymore. Now they're losing weight effortlessly. Now they have a higher energy. And I think that through the use of those products, I was able to understand that and start giving people a little bit more, um, I think pieces to bite off and a little bit more to chew. And so launch another company, which is perfect keto, which is what I'm 
has it was just over two years ago we launched it. Um, this is something that ketogenic diet is something we were using a lot as a tool in the clinic to help people if they had metabolic dysfunction, if they had gut problems, if they had um, any like or obesity for sure, weight loss, um, diabetes. We we worked a lot with, but it was so hard for people to understand that it was worth it to do, just like eating real food was. And so giving them, <clears throat> for instance, the first product we launched was the exogenous ketone, which is a product you take, you have ketones in your bloodstream immediately. And a, a lot about nutrition, in my opinion, is just a feedback loop where if you have something, you eat something, then you, I mean, you don't know really how that affects you and so you don't really make good choices. So there's, there's a lot of positive feedback loops right now are taste. Because <laughs> if somebody eats something and it tastes good, they want to eat more of it. That's the only feedback loop they have. Where, whereas like if I eat a bagel, if I eat wheat products in general and grains, I get acne, but it's not for like three days, right? If I was eating that food and I was popping up with acne all on my face when I was eating it, I would not eat that food. But what happens is when you have an exogenous ketone, you start being like, oh, okay, if I start running on ketones, I know how I could feel. Like I can have a lot of mental clarity. I can have a lot of boundless energy, which then can help me exercise more, which then can help me reduce cravings and things like that. And so I think it shortened up a lot of feedback loops for people as well as investing into the content and making all the information. I mean, we're still doing it at a, at a crazy pace because there's so much conflicting information about a ketogenic diet and trying to make it simpler and simpler and simpler for people to just start it and be successful if it's a tool that works for them. I do not think that's for everybody, but if it's a tool that works for them, then that's great and we want to make it easier for people. So both solving the, the problem that I saw in my clinic of, it's too confuse, confusing and people didn't understand that it was worth doing in the beginning. And now I think that we're starting to have a lot of change um, and it's, yeah, it's been, been a hell of a journey. So that was, so started that two years ago, just before then I had, that's when I stopped with my clinics. And so focus on this full time. We're helping way more people than 12,000. <laughs> and so that, I mean, that, that fires me up every day. Oh man, what a, uh, what a monologue there, dude. I got so many questions for you. One of them that pops out is like, you're in the Bay Area. Everyone wants to get a tiny piece of these athletes, and it's so impossible to get their attention. How did you start working with elite athletes and, and doing your trickle-down theory? Yeah, a few different things. Uh, one of them was, was word of mouth. So just working with a lot of the high-end, so CrossFit athletes and being part of that community. So some referrals of, of connections there. And then a few actually through Twitter, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> me just reaching out to people on Twitter and saying, hey, athlete, athlete X, Y, or Z, you're in the area. If you need any help, come by. Like We'll, we'll be sure to, to help you out. At that point, I had started already building a little bit of a following. And, um, from my other, you know, my blog and all this other stuff. And so I think that I had a little bit more of, you know, if it's real legitimacy or not, but something that maybe from an outside perspective looked, looked pretty good. And so, yeah, I, that, that led from one thing to another and just more and more referrals. And I think when you help people, it, it goes a long way. Right on. That's, a, that's, that's about it. You just keep doing what you're doing and let people find you. How about tweeting out to LeBron James, like, "Hey, LeBron, are you still eating egg whites? Why is that?" You hear him on the on a recent podcast. He's like, "Yeah, I have my egg white on." I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" LeBron James yeah. is 25 years behind the the science. What's up with that? Shaking my head. I think that he did keto a couple summers ago, though. And so, yeah, I'm. We'll 
We'll try to be in touch. I'll, I'll keep tweeting and see if that works. Yeah, we'll, we'll, hit, <laughs> we'll hit him hard. Um, and then also, you said it kind of in a joking manner about you're racing through the school and you're still recovering from the burnout. But I, I'd like to ask you in more detail about that because I sometimes uh, joke about that myself. My, my nine years on the professional triathlon circuit where I just trained like a crazy man, I, in some ways I feel like I might still be recovering from it or that it has some sort of long-term damage when you push yourself that hard. I imagine you didn't get enough sleep during that, that binge period of education. Yeah. I mean, it was just in no way what I did was healthy for me. And like, I tried to keep up and push myself in the gym and I tried to, you know, max out studying and like, I didn't make enough time for relationships. And it was just, it was toxic in so many other ways. Um, and so I think that that just built and built and built. And then what happened is like every, I think it was every four months I had two weeks off Oh, that's um, it. That was, that was your, um, your pattern. That was the yeah. break. That was the break. And then, so that was essentially the case from high school all the way till when I was done with grad school. Um, because I did summers through an undergrad as well. And so that, yeah, I mean, it wasn't as crazy until I got to, to graduate school, but yeah, I mean, I, if going like, he, here's the tough thing though. It's like, yes, I suffered. Yes. It sucked. Yes. There was a lot of recovery. No, I would never recommend this for somebody to do electively. But the, the the matter of fact is like I got out of grad school with a doctorate and master's degree and like was well on my career when I was 24 years old. And that was like, and now I'm, you know, I just turned 30. And if I would have waited and done things the way other people would have, I pretty much would have just been getting started now. And so, to I mean, I think that like there's a certain level of like it also kind of shaped who I am now and the type of stuff I'm able to handle. Like the, I think the mental toughness that I have now to be able to, if I need to handle 16 hour days and just crank through and go through these crazy periods that we have of growth, um, we, I can do that. And the, and I, the magnitude of like, I can pretty much tackle anything and not, not necessarily, um, waiting for anything to come my way and more. So just kind of getting after it, it, it I think is more valuable than the short term, the burnout that I felt. But I mean, the way it looked in general was, I mean, in those two week breaks, you know, I'd maybe try to do something like I remember one time with my girlfriend at the time, I went to San Diego and she was like, yeah, I want to plan this trip and, and get you out of here or whatever. And I did. And like, I was like, a, a li- I, I was joking when I said I was a zombie before, like I was a literal zombie then. And she recalled afterwards of like, I, had no affect. I, like I couldn't hold a conversation. I was just kind of looking at days, and then looking back after that trip was over, like I was like I had no idea what even happened on that trip. And so, like this, this is the type of stuff we're talking about. Like it was certainly it was not healthy, and I and I don't recommend it. Um, and it and it took a lot of a lot of time to learn a lot of habits. But again, like I don't know if I would have really gotten solid with a lot of the morning habits that I have now had I not gone through that period, and had a lot of struggle of like okay. I am broken now and how do I fix myself? And that's kind of led to a lot of, of my daily, nightly routines, my self-care now that, that I, I kind of, I, I invest in heavily and I don't really let, let a grip on. So it sounds like you'd, you'd do it again, or would you, would you do it exactly the same way again? Would you maybe tone down your effort to keep an exercise commitment during that time and, and just study and sleep? Or what would you do differently? Mm, again, if, if I could, if I could assume that I could go back with and like retain the same type of mental toughness and ability to think through problems the way I have now, I think because of that reason, I'd say like, let's, let's remove that from the equation. If, if I were to lose that, I probably wouldn't do it any differently. 
But if going back, I would say a lot of the stuff that I do now, um, I think meditation is probably the biggest one. I think that that has amplified my output as a human being 10 to 15 minutes a day more than anything else that I've ever done. So you're spending 10 to 15 minutes a day and it's having that profound effect on your overall productivity and remarkable happiness, whatever. Remarkable effect. Tell me about your, tell me about your regimen. Yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of different types of meditation. I've gone through transcendental meditation and, and done that whole, um, I'd say it's kind of a little bit, a little bit cultish, a little bit crazy. Um, but did it, it's, I think it's uh, just, I, with a lot of these things, um, a lot of people buy into them as the only way. And I think that ultimately the same thing with nutrition, with meditation and movement and all this stuff is that you have certain tools for certain situations. So for instance, I, you know, once a morning, it's, I would say I average maybe like 1.4 times a day meditation. So like I was in the morning um, and if I uh, can't fit that in for whatever reason, it, it gets done at some point throughout the day. And if it, there's a little bit of extra time that I can get another one in the, the afternoon, but um, it depends how distracted I am. Like if it's like, I, I know I can't focus on things. I will do a transcendental meditation, which is repeating a mantra over and over and over again. And I know that is a tool now that helps me focus deep on something. If I am more irritable than I should be because of extra stress or taking on a lot, then I'll do a more kind of mindfulness meditation. If I feel like I'm not um, appreciative enough of people around me or kind of, I would say, taking time for either myself or people who are close to me, then I do more of a, like a loving kindness meditation, which is, again, to me sounded crazy when I started doing it, but it's, it's actually extremely effective in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I think that it doesn't really have a certain shape or form. I think that there's a lot of tools that I've gathered in my toolbox and I'm super excited like what the next 20, 30, 40 years of learning more about meditation is going to bring because I know that I'm just going to have a, a bigger toolbox for, to solve, solve more problems. What got you into it in the first place? Yeah, uh, I think that just, I, this is another one of the things about being in the magical state of San Francisco, which is like everybody is kind of on the cutting edge, especially when I was there of, I mean, I heard about it, heard about it, heard about it on podcasts, people around me. Um, and for, I think that a lot of people, especially stubborn people, people like myself, uh, especially growing up in the Midwest in a small town, very conservative. Like, I mean, this, there's just such a stigma with the word meditation that the first few times I heard it, I was like, ah, it's ridiculous. Like, well, you're just going to sit in a corner and be all Zen and, and figure out all your life's problems. And then I think that the first time that Headspace came out as an app, was the first I mean, a couple of years, three, four years ago now, is when I first tried it, and within I think ten or twelve days, noticed my th my thoughts in a way that I had never before, and so now that has amplified significantly. And so, for instance, when I have five thousand things going on in my head, I'm able to just very clearly distill what I should pretty much toss away and what I should focus on, and that to me is an invaluable skill. And not only that, but is this clarity like is this clarity coming after your session in the in the following two hours where you really focus in on your to do list and prioritize or something? So the thing that makes meditation tough, I think, for a lot of people is kind of like what I said before about the the feedback loops. With meditation, you have a very very long feedback loop, and so for me, it's more of a cumulative effect. And so it's like I need to do meditation every day for like two or three weeks to be able to have that effect. It's not an instant thing. Like afterwards, it's what I get. It's kind of like, for instance, if you're working out and you do one session of bicep curls and you're like, well, why am I still a frail little child? Like what's going on here? So I still have that problem. But the, there's, there's a certain level of training that you need to do to start 
seeing some benefits. Same thing with weight training. So you'd say you're working out for a couple of weeks and you finally are able to move the weights a little bit more. It's not like after one session, the rest of the day you feel stronger and then you have to do it again to feel stronger. It's, it's a cumulative effect on your brain, in my opinion. And so this is something that's been key to me is because like it's, it's easy to forget about doing it. And so there's, there was a time this year um, where I kind of fell off the wagon a little bit of meditation. And, and I think I have a tracker. I track a lot of stuff, but I'm at like 300 in 25 meditations this year or something like that. But that, granted, that's, you know, 1.4 times a day. So it's been a lot of days where I haven't meditated. And I mean, it's the truth of it. Like my, my routine's not perfect. Uh, my life's not perfect. And so when I fall off of it, though. Wait, wait. It's perfect keto, I thought. What, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> uh, editor, let's edit that section out where he said he's not perfect, please. Thank you. Okay. So appreciate that. Um, and so, I mean, uh, after a few weeks of straight of not meditating, I noticed myself again becoming more reactive, um, being, being a little more irritable, um, taking on stress and not be able to deal with it in an appropriate way. And then I was like, oh, that's right. I should be doing that. Like that's what I'm not doing. And then I added it back in and all those things I think kind of took care of themselves again. And so it's one of these, like it, it just changes the, the way you approach reality in every second of the day in such an important way. That's it's one of the most underrated things I think that somebody can do to improve their experience as a human. And your sessions are lasting 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. I found that anything above that doesn't really have any additive magnitude well i guess it would be 30 minutes for the average person if he went through if he went through school in half yeah, the time <laughs> and, and so, i mean i also haven't <laughs> or, done like an hour a day for a certain period of time either i just think that this is one of those things like again maybe that's a tool that's useful at some point um i've kind of dabbled around but it, kind of what i'm looking for there is like i do with a lot of workouts and maybe bringing back to what i would have done a little bit better in in school is finding the minimum effective dose of things and so Working out, for example, like if I work out for two hours instead of one hour, I don't really get any extra benefit from, from me where I'm at right now. And so that's something with, you know, you just, there's a law of diminishing returns, I think, with some of the stuff. And I think for me, I mean, maybe that dips down and goes back up at a certain point. But for me to, to cross that chasm, uh, I have too many other things on my plate right now to start meditating for an hour to two hours a day. Uh, same with the working out, I suppose. I mean, if you work out for two hours instead of one, you're going to have more training effect, but I think what's going to happen is down the line, you're going to have higher risk of injury, burnout, regression. Right. I mean, just looking at opportunity cost of that, it's like, okay, I could work out for two straight hours or I could work out for one hour and do an hour of movement uh, prep or yoga or something like that to work on movement or mobility or stability down the road. It's like, I mean, there's, a, I think, always an opportunity cost. And there's so many things and different ways to optimize the health. And I think that for me, I've noticed that, you know, 10, 15 minutes of meditation is like for that, for what I've tried, you know, 30 minutes, et cetera, and going back and forth, like that's, that's a pretty good amount. Whereas like, okay, there's also, you know, like we were talking about earlier, cold plunge and nutrition and meal prep and actually spending time with other people and having creative output and learning stuff and working out and being physical. It's like, there's, a, there's really only so much time in the day to, to devote to this like optimized life and, you know, living the best version that you can. Oh wow! I, that's that's a good one to put out there, man. That's true, and I think a lot of people get intimidated, including myself. Like I have these ambitions to do all my functional mobility work that Kelly Star recommends. That he he recommends to endurance athletes they spend fifteen minutes of every hour of their training in something mobility flexibility drill, and so all of a sudden you're either 
uh, cutting your workouts back or you're skimping on something. And then when you're adding in all these other things, meditation, yoga, uh, the, the cold and heat therapies, which we talked about offline, but we're a big fan of. And all of a sudden, oh, now you're running out of time. Now you're getting stressed because of all your health practices. So it's a little tricky there, huh? Yeah, it is tricky. I've actually just built a new spreadsheet to track all the things that I want to, <laughs> to maintain because I mean, there's a certain things in my life that I know that if I do this, then my life will be better and head in a better direction. And so, I mean, for me, I'm a very INTJ type A person. And so just having that in a spreadsheet and it's like, I was able to go back and be like, I'm, I'm like not handling life the way I want it to right now. What has changed? And I looked at this tracker and showed me, okay, meditation dropped out for the last two months. I've been traveling a lot. I've not been focused on, on work. And so these are all these things to be able to look back and be like, oh, I haven't been doing um, as much working out or movement sessions. And so be able to see that and see kind of like, and just, like I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast here is that it's, it's a journey that never ends in my opinion. And so the much data you can, as, as much data as you can gather and learn and understanding that also your goals may change. And so that's another thing too, is that people think that they should find one way to eat for the rest of their lives. It's not like, again, ketosis is one of these things where like, it's great for people if they use it as a tool for certain reasons. I use it as a tool for certain reasons, um, but it's not the only tool in my toolbox for nutrition. And my goal may change. If I wanted to gain a lot of muscle mass really quickly, yes, you can gain muscle on a ketogenic diet. But for me personally, I know that if I eat carbohydrates and ratchet that up, I gain muscle way quicker. And so my goal may change. It may not. And so just being clear with that, but now and like trying to figure out the journey and the path is always changing. Um, and so I think just getting data and, and figuring out how stuff works for you. So you have back, looking back as many tools as possible is super critical. Well, you've had a lot of hands-on time as well as being, uh, the, the leader of the, um, the, the supplement scene. And do you think there's a wide, uh, variety in optimal approaches where, where we're trying to communicate these, these guidelines to everyone um, are we, are we missing the boat somehow or, or how, how big is the spectrum of difference, you know, between one person and the other, as far as results and what they should do with keto and their macros and things of that nature? I actually think it's pretty huge. I mean, I think it depends on like on, on the goal specifically and the person, but I mean, this is the thing that we try to make it easy for people is to test things for themselves. And people are so individual in how their health outcomes respond to different tools and approaches. And I think you have some generalizations that aren't really in argue. So for, for example, everyone's going to function better eating real food than eating not real food. Like let's, let's, let's not cross that line. Like, but you know wait, I mean? but wait, okay. Okay. We'll give you that one. Right. And so everyone would benefit from moving more like a human than not in sitting, like just sitting all the time or not expressing full ranges of motion of joints. Like there's, there's these certain constants that I think that like those are prerequisites. And then after that, I think we have a lot of room for individuality. People's histories are so different and, and for so many different reasons, whether that's genetic, whether that's gut microbiome, whether that's tolerance, habits, emotional patterns, we have in, in culture and people that surround themselves with societal pressures. Like there, there's so many different variances here that people are going to respond very, very differently. And so I think that that makes it challenging and everybody wants a simple one size fits all toolbox with one tool in it. Um, I mean, if that's the case, you like when you try to build a house that is in, like a suitable, habitable environment, like if you had one hammer and that's all you had, 
you have a pretty janky looking house at the end of the day. And so you should want to have as many tools as possible and figure that out. Like you, your approach is going to be very different for you versus me or anybody else that we're talking to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that's where I think it's fun to learn from other people and be like, oh, how are you approaching this? And then maybe incorporating some of those elements and trying it out myself and, and adapting and evolving over time. Um, I just get bored otherwise. I mean, what, what if we just figured it all out and we just like, like had everything <laughs> go watch, uh, watch Netflix, uh, the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's, I think it's fun. And that's like what fires me up about myself and, and think like the, a, a great culture that we have as a team is everybody's doing this too. And so everybody's kind of like learning about themselves as they're growing with the team. And I, I mean, it's just something that it's huge. I think that just to realize the individuality of it all. Well, I'm finding that myself. I went from, uh, you know, a, a practice of fasting till midday for a long time. And now I'm mixing and matching and doing these super nutrition morning green smoothies. I'm trying some of your powder in there, man. It, the, the vanilla is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, but you know, the, the, um, for me, I'm just going to put it out there and then ask you what you think are some of the main places where we can tweak. But um, I'm finding that some days I think the extended fast is is great and highly beneficial. And we talk so much about how important that is. And then other days I might want to uh, put a lot of calories in right away first thing in the morning uh, to fuel my athletic performance and recovery or what have you. Is that one of the is that one of the places where we can benefit from tweaking like the fasting versus nutrition and whatnot? I think fasting is one of the biggest ones. So I'm glad you brought that up, actually. I, I, I think, I don't know, months ago, I also, I was doing a lot of fasting, a lot of intermittent fasting, not eating until 2 p.m., et cetera. And then, again, I think that just this last year, two years, with how, how much the company's grown and what we've been able to accomplish has been great, but also <laughs> kind of reminiscent of my time in grad school where, I mean, the, the amount of pressure and, like, workload is is... It's intense. It's a, it's a lot to handle. And I realized some of those same type of feelings of burnout started creeping up again. And fasting is a stress. People don't realize like fasting is a stress in the body. So it's a, like just like working out is a stress. Um, it's a good, it can be a good positive stress. But if you have a lot of other stuff going on in your life, it can be a, a very a nasty stress. And so for me, I, I did it for that reason. And so not necessarily to fuel my athletic performance, but because I was starting to feel a little bit of this burnout, my body was just overwhelmed. Too much stuff going on. So I switched a little bit more to gymnastics um, training instead of weight training to kind of remove a little bit of the stress on my body that way. And then I also shifted to waking up, essentially meditating, doing my morning routine, working out, and then eating a very large meal, maybe around 9, um, instead of going to 2, 3, 4 p.m. like I was doing before. And remarkable difference. Remarkable difference. But again very different goal. So like I, I was not trying to fuel many of my, um, athletic performance like you were, uh, but for you, that might be a good tool. And, and for somebody else, maybe who is riding along next to you or running next to you, they feel way better if they fast. For instance, my girlfriend feels way better if she fasts until two, 3 PM and only has one sort of large meal a day. And she's kind of tweaked it both ways. She just feels way better that way. Um, again, maybe she just is not as overburdened with with everything that that i am currently or like ha, has a little bit more resiliency or i mean who knows exactly why her body's adapting that way but i mean this is one of those things that she tried it um, she feels better fasting we just had a conversation about it yesterday she, she goes i feel way better when i don't eat as much great wow. let's do that and then i i now have tools though when for instance when i'm traveling i i almost always fast um i feel way better recovery wise um it's 
unless I go like four or five, six time zones, like there's no catch up, no jet lag, um, and fasting through a plane ride or, or an entire travel day. And so for instance, we were just at a family function for a, a wedding a couple of weeks ago and super long travel day. I, the night before started fasting and then all the way through two days later fasted until the cake and was served at the wedding. All the way through that. You, yep. you pass that whole deal. You <laughs> yeah. just sat in the background. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, um, came back in, in those few di- few final days when I was fasted. Um, so I wear an aura ring at night to track, you know, HRV, resting heart rate, things like that, sleep quality. And I have not seen that good of scores ever uh, until I was fasting. And so again, maybe my body just need a lot of recovery and not eating food for a while was one of those things that, that helped a lot. Um, I was also not pushing myself a lot with work. I wasn't working out a lot. And so then removing those other stressors of, okay, I have really nothing else to stress about right now, physically, emotionally, mentally, and I can kind of let the, my body react to this stress of fasting it, kind of with all of its attention and dive in on that. And I think when it's, when it's people who try to over-optimize on potential stressors where they get caught a little bit and then they start you know, going in a little bit of a downward spiral. Uh, I think that losing fat can be, and like changing your nutrition drastically can be a huge stressor. And so if people try to change everything at once, start working out a lot and add in fasting, that can actually be a re- recipe for disaster. Um, so, I mean, this is one of those things where I think it's highly individual. And contrary to that, some people might add it in immediately and notice crazy benefits and switch over a lot of metabolic dysfunction that they've had for years, regulate a lot of glucose disposal and just have a lot of great changes immediately. Um, and so some people, but some people need to kind of take their way pretty easily to get in that and not throw everything at once. Well, could you categorize people by the desire to drop excess body fat or not? And if you're trying to lose excess body fat, um, is keto and fasting going to be your most direct path? I think, I think due to why most people are overweight in, especially in Western culture and American culture is from the overconsumption and abuse of processed sugars and weird foods and basically overeating carbohydrates. And so I think going to the other end of the spectrum with a ketogenic diet is something that works for a lot of people. Is it the only way? Absolutely not. Uh, I'm not ever preaching that and I don't ever want people to think that way. Um, so I think that starting there as a base and just seeing how your body reacts to it. Again, let's chat about fundamentals and say that let's eat real food first. So real food ketogenic diet not a sour cream, bacon wrapped cheese stick, fried and butter only type of diet, like a still eating real things that grow and spoil diet. And, and then... Yeah, so, someone just sent me a, a note. Hey, have you heard of this dirty keto? And I'm like, dirty keto? What? What? Yeah. And it's like a big thing now. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know where they... I think it's yeah. been a big thing for a while. It just, it, yeah, luckily has a name now. Um, and so we can luckily actually... Luckily has a name. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Are you on perfect keto or dirty keto? Um, uh, pretty much perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's. Oh my gosh. There's just a lot of uh, variance there, but again, some fundamentals. And then I think that just if that's a goal, again, try it out. I don't think a, I don't think every single person responds magically to it. I do. I think a lot of people respond really, really well. Absolutely, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Um. Uh. So yeah, I think that's a good one. And I think that then you look at how well it works for you. If it's working really well and you're losing a couple of pounds of fat a week and it's effortless, then do you really need to start adding in fasting? Probably not. Like it's like, let's just see how far you can get with that instead of adding in tons and tons and tons of extra tools. And then let's say you hit it, maybe a sticking point. You maybe check your blood glucose. It's, you know, you eat a meal and it's raising super high. Your, your, your fasting blood glucose is pretty high. 
And it's, you're having a hard time managing that after a few months of keto. You kind of hit a, a little wall or plateau. Uh, I think that obviously looking at food choices and what you're eating there is important. But if everything looks on, on point, then maybe adding in fasting to that, if you can handle it as a, again, it's not crazy time of your life, then I think that it's another good option to add as an adjunct, I would say therapy or tool to a ketogenic diet. Do I think they're must side by side? Absolutely not. And that's why I think a lot of people get crossed up is that they like associate fasting and keto just because you have less of an appetite and you can fast easier with the ketogenic diet. Like does that does not mean that you have to, or you should necessarily. Right. I, I think, uh, if your your appetite is suppressed to the extent that maybe you have to make a plan to eat breakfast even if you're not hungry in certain in certain examples. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't like have to be choking down food by by any means. Right. But like, yeah, I mean, if it's one of those things where you're a lot of people when they try fasting, it's miserable for them. And I mean, I think until it, until it, it gets to a point where you're like super fat, adapted, you've been doing it for a long period of time, and your body can make that transition, it's pretty grueling. If I were to take most people, yeah. So could we, uh, could we add that to your list of general insights? If you're miserable doing something, it's probably probably not a great idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> probably. I mean, to to a certain extent, like I don't think a lot of that stuff needs to be crazy. Um, like, like needs to associate a crazy amount of suffering. I think that that can be really helpful in a lot of different ways. For if you know, if you don't, if you're looking for a certain amount of mental fortitude that you don't have, I think like, and I think that generally. Suffering through things can be a, a positive thing, but I think that associating that with the need, like you, you need to be miserable and restrict yourself to have health, that is not, that, sh- that should not be associated. Do I think all suffering is bad? Absolutely not. But do I think that it's re- required for being healthy? No. Yeah, well said. I, I appreciate that distinction. Uh, Anthony, let's talk about the the role of the supplements since you're so, you're so big into that scene. Um, I have the opinion that especially relating to athletic performance, this could be the, the greatest breakthrough that we've seen in, in the supplement world in, in 40 years since they, since they first invented powdered protein and energy drink. Uh, and then there's also some misunderstandings or there's some, some criticism of the concept of taking supplements. So let's get kind of the state of the union from you here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, supplements are what they, what they say they are. So they're supplemental again to a real foods, whole foods diet. And so they, they are not called replacements for a reason. And that's kind of like how the stance we've taken from, from the very beginning is like, of course they can be helpful and they can help you get to a certain point, but they're not replacements. And that's something that you should, that, that are additive or supplemental to what, whatever you're already having. And so that's, that's kind of my stance in general on, on supplement products. Uh, and, and obviously I, we think that they're helpful and trying to bridge that gap now with creating much higher quality food products than I have seen otherwise. And so that's something that going obviously into that direction is, is very, very difficult, um, it, to make something that's high quality, high fat that doesn't spoil and become rancid and like has and tastes just as good, if not better than anything else is incredibly difficult. It's <laughs> so hard. And so we've, I mean, we've we've been working a lot of food products since we started the company two years ago. And it's just, it's, it's requiring a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's kind of where, uh, of course, supplements are helpful. Um, but yeah, we want to push people and create this bridge, um, from supplements to food products to, I mean, down the line, having certain whole food, real food meal kits and things like that. And so, I mean, certainly there's a spectrum here. Um, again, it really depends on the individual and their goals. Uh, so as far as taking a powdered 
exogenous ketone supplement, mixing in it and drinking, literally drinking ketones and having them in your bloodstream to burn right away. What is the rationale for that? What are the, what are the times that someone might benefit tremendously from that? Yeah. So like I said earlier, I think a lot of it is a feedback loop of, of experiencing ketosis and some of the benefits you have. And so for example, I'm in a state of nutritional ketosis now. So I'm eating in, in a, a ketogenic diet and my millimolar reading of ketones, the level of ketones in my blood only gets up to, you know, 0. 0.8 or 1.0 generally. Um, and I think that that is common for males who work out, who are young and, and metabolically flexible. It's because uh, you're using a lot of the ketones in your, in your, um, in your tissues. And so, however, when I want to really make sure that I'm on point mentally, um, like for this podcast, for example, I have ketones before that to get some, some extra buffer. So I know that I'm going to be able to churn through those as much as I, as I need at any point in time. And so for me personally, it's for mental capacity and be able to, to basically use it almost as a mental focusing aid and mental clarity aid. Um, so those are huge benefits for me. And so that's, I think, one subset is being able to be on, on fire mentally, which is great. Um, and a, a, I think a, another one that you talked about before is, is even when you start having high-fat foods, things like this, once a certain amount of energy is available to your body, some people think that you know having ketones will stop fat burning immediately. And we can go into that in a second here of, of why I think that's absurd. But Secondarily, your body goes, oh, all this energy is available. We don't need to eat excessively anymore. And so a lot of times people eat low-quality food um, and, or maybe excessively eat food because their body is primed to do so because they're not getting the right energy systems to their body. And so if you, have, you flood it with ketones, I've seen a lot of people start regulating their appetite long-term towards a better uh, fit for them instead of saying, like, you're at this macro percentage of like some generic macro calculator told you to eat this. And then, like you said, you're miserable trying to get that amount. Once you start doing this, you, your body almost like self-regulates to eating the right amount. Uh, it, was, it was something that I've noticed. I noticed the same thing even more aggressively with a carnivore diet. So that's something that we, you know, we could get into eventually. But um, the same thing, I think removing a lot of these ext- extraneous variables from your diet and focusing on one single food, your body pretty quickly regulates what it wants versus what it doesn't want. And I think that having the excessive amount of energy available to it for the ketones kind of regulates it for all of the other things that it may need. Um, I think that, so, so that's one of the, so I'd say appetite suppression, suppression, and, um, I'd say just getting a little bit more reasonable for what your body should be regulated to. Um, and you mentioned another big one, which is, um, athletic performance. And so this is something that having that fuel available to shuttle into your muscles and your tissues, um, that is more favorable per oxygen molecule. You get more energy out of it. And it's not like it's an energy system of carbohydrate. We need to be continually consuming it over and over and over again. Same thing with mental capacity. I feel better when I'm on a ketogenic diet. Taking ketones buffers that a little bit more. I have a higher end, end range. I think that athletic is the same way. So like, for instance, if you are already burning fat and ketogenic adapt, fat adapted athlete, and then you start taking exogenous ketones, now you increase that top end buffer. I know that some people are now using kind of dual fuel systems and the guys at um, Human or HVMN made a ketone ester, but pretty much at all times, if you take a whole one, it pushes your ketones up so high that it drives your glucose down really, really low. And so you will, after the ketones burn off two, three hours, you'll get a giant crash. 
And so having to use that with carbohydrates is a, is a strategy I've seen a lot of endurance athletes do and have really great results with that. But that gets it then kind of like this kind of complicated zone of are you keto or are you not? Are you eating carbs or not? You, is it fueling just for athletic reasons or not? Is this a health thing or not? And so, I mean, again, it's a very specific goal. Um, and then I think that, you know, Dominic D'Agostino and a lot of people there are at University of South Florida and in that community of, of researching ketones and ketogenic diet are noticing that exogenous ketones in general are having a, a lot of signaling effects in the body. So signaling effects to decrease anxiety, decrease depression, um, increase survival time after head trauma. So, I mean, the applications potentially instead of drinking Gatorade on the sidelines when you know, NFL players, NHL players are getting their skulls smashed in. Like, why do we not have ketone drinks there? Or at least mix the, the Gatorade mixed with ketones. Like, this could be a huge advantage. Um, suppression of cancer um, genes. Like, there's so many of these things that, I mean, we're learning all of them now um, that are that go far beyond just a basic nutrient of, you know, protein powder is great. You know, it does all these things, but essentially it's just protein. But the the fact that a ketone molecule can be a signaling molecule that decreases inflammation, that decreases, you know, negative mental states and, and like maybe use it as, you know, I think a lot of people use beta blockers now before they go on stage if they're a little nervous for stuff. Like instead of doing that, have some ketones. You'll be both focused. You'll have decreased anxiety. And it's something that your body already produces when, when you go into a state of ketosis. Um, so I think that there's a lot of potential coming up in the next few years as we start to unravel this and, and see what comes of it. But yeah, I mean, it's super exciting. So for the listener that's um, not all the way in with the science, when you say signaling molecule, you're, in, you're implying that when you consume the ketones, it's having a similar effect to, let's say, taking an ibuprofen. Uh, it's having a genetic signaling effect to lower inflammation. Is that fair to compare? Yeah. So, or any drug, maybe any drug to maybe to simplify this, think about how most things like protein, like I said, have a very direct effect. So, you 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 consume it, and those proteins made of amino acids, kind of like a little Lego building blocks, and those get put into tissues or they they build things in your body. It's very direct. So the molecule does something. Um, in a signaling pathway, what happens is the molecule is present, but it tells something else to do something. And so that ketone, the direct effect of it is that it provides you more energy. Yeah, whether that's mental, whether that's um, physical and the athletic performance, but the signaling part of it is it tells something else to do something, like you said. So, it, for instance, with the decrease of inflammation, it's a little bit different of a pathway than an ibuprofen. So that would be a COX-2 inhibitor. So ibuprofen was, you know, again, we don't need to go crazy in inflammatory pathways, but that's a COX-2 inhibitor. Whereas um, the a ketone is an HDAC inhibitor. So histone deacetylase inhibitor. So it, these are the things that wrap around DNA. And so it, it goes and, and signals that to do something different than ibuprofen does. But it's something that you could do over a long period of time. Whereas the ketone is not doing it itself. It's telling another complex to do something. As well, so in, uh, over and above it being a, a calorie source, it has these signaling effects. Exactly. So it's not just the direct effect of what it's doing. It's the signaling effect of also affecting so many other pathways in your body. And so this is the stuff that we're, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of, um, a lot of the researchers are really focusing on now is what are all of the things that it's signaling? Um, and yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of promising stuff. Uh, so for the athletes, the comparison between the Gatorade, uh, you know, burning glucose for energy, which has been our common go-to energy source for, for forever until, until recently in comparison to burning ketones while you're doing an intense athletic event, 
um, tell me about the the inflammatory benefits of, of burning a cleaner fuel. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that even a better story would be uh, your pathway, I'm sure, looks the same as a lot of other endurance athletes where you went through a time where you were consuming a massive amount of carbohydrates and then you switched over, some some way figured it out, and now have uh, are more fat adapted. Can I, can I assume this is correct? Sure, yeah. Okay, so what about your experience, I would say, as far as like what you felt recovering from a race, how you felt going through it, um, and how you feel now, at I would say, in a more experienced age, whereas but, you know, when you're younger, you expect to feel better. A lot of times what I've heard from people is that they, you know, 10, 20, 40, 50 years later, they feel better physically, especially endurance athletes, just consuming fat and recovering than they did eating carbohydrates in, in massive am- amounts. So what's your experience with that? Right. I think when you're, when you're out there doing these extreme athletic efforts, especially the prolonged endurance activity at an elevated heart rate where you're, you're, you're highly stressing the body rather than just out there hiking or jogging all day, um, you're, you're in an, an inflammatory state from the the you know that there's oxidative stress that comes from pushing your body for hours and hours or going you know really hard in the gym for one hour right so you're you're sort of in a stressed state there's oxidative stress happening and then you're consuming glucose to fuel the activity which is you know another another oxidative stress because we can call it a dirty burning fuel it doesn't need mitochondria and you can just burn it right in the cell and have more more output of oxidative stress so you're getting a stressful workout and a stressful fuel source source to fuel the workout as well as recover with and so what what interested me in uh, taking the supplements in and around my workout. So I'm taking it before, during, if whatever possible, and as well as after, in the hours after. I'm sort of a clean burning machine at the time when I really want to be a clean burning machine because I'm doing something stressful to my body during that time period and then trying to recover and come down in the hour, two hours after my sprint workout, let's say. That's where I find waking up the next morning, I'm not as sore. And I I have good um, benchmarks, Anthony. I mean, I've been doing these sprint workouts for 13 years now pretty pretty aggressively i moved away from the endurance stuff so i sprint i know what i feel like the next day when i wake up my calves my ankles things are creaky cracky uh stiff and sore and when i'm taking the ketone supplement during and for a couple hours after the workout i wake up and feel better i'm not going to say i go out there and i went 12 seconds faster (laughs) because i'm drinking something in my bottle and you know people have been trying to tell us that for so long in the athletic scene like yeah yeah, yeah, right, whatever. But I'm looking at the overall effect of the workout down the line, like you said earlier in the show, like 24, 48 hours later, that's when I want to feel like something happened that was, you know, less stressful. Yeah. And, and this is the, the thing where we get back to signaling. So we don't know the exact percentage, but okay, let's say there's all these different effects. One, you're removing, the, like you said, a dirty fuel. Okay. Now you're adding in a clean fuel. Now we're also adding in a signaling molecule that decreases inflammation. And so like how many of these things is stacked up are making a difference? I mean, we don't, we don't know exactly right now, but I mean, I think it's, that's one of the best things about this is that like it's, it's both addition through remo- removal and addition by addition. So like you, you get both of these things here and I think that you start stacking way more things instead of just simply adding one thing, which a lot of people think like, so we just add a protein powder. You're pretty much adding one thing. You know, you're not removing anything. You're not changing your diet around. You're not changing your metabolism. And so there's a lot of factors at play here, not just the one thing of, oh, I'm just going to have this scoop of something and that's going to have one effect. 
Well, on that note, we want to be consuming these supplements in a backdrop of a fat and keto adapted diet, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that some people, I think that contrary to what some people say, I think that they're totally safe in in a high carbohydrate diet. Um, I would say that ketones are better than. so if you're gonna have a high carbohydrate high carbohydrate diet, I think ketones are great. I think that if you have high carbohydrate, high saturated fat, fat high long chain fat, that's not a good combo. Um, and so I would say like you you should probably do one or the other, especially if you have oxidative stress like that. You don't want to be stacking all of these things together and having high carbohydrate, high saturated fat. Ketones don't work really work in the same type of pathways, and so you're not gonna have the same amount of inflammatory uptake. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is one of the recommendations that I try to give people is like, okay, you don't want to do keto, fine. You figure out carbs work well for you, fine. Just then go on a little bit of a low, like don't eliminate flat fats entirely. Go more towards the MCTs, go for the shorter chain fats, go for the ketones, but don't go as far into the long chain fats and the, the saturated fats, in my opinion. I guess that's uh, a fair number of people might be pondering that very question. Of of you know deciding how to not go all the way to keto keep their carbs in uh, but not mixing what's a practical example are we talking like bacon and butter as well as your sweet potatoes and your wild rice and things Uh, i mean i don't think that it's for somebody who has a sweet potato in some butter on it not a big deal in my opinion but if like you said an an endurance athlete where you're creating all this oxidative stress and then you have to consume four five hundred six hundred seven hundred grams of carbs and all that is oxidative stress of processing that glucose and you're adding in now butter and bacon, like I think that's a problem. And so that's what we want to avoid. And I think that somebody who's reasonably consuming 50 grams of carbohydrates in a whole food form, don't worry about it in general. But if you have this stage set for a really oxidative inflammatory environment and you're adding in carbohydrates and saturated fat in excessive degrees, that's where you need to like ratchet it back a little bit and be more careful of, of what you're doing here. But thanks for the clarification. It's probably... People were freaking out about that a little bit. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you're a fascinating guy, man. I, I love catching up with you. I want to direct people to go learn more at the website because it's a learning experience as well. as You can, you can grab the products there, but I think you're, you're doing a great job there at Perfect Keto. So uh, why don't you tell us the best way to connect with you and, and what the company's doing? Yeah, it's perfectketo.com is where we have all the information like you talked about. And then me personally, um, I'm most active on, on Instagram. So just Dr. Anthony Gustin on Instagram. And I respond to every message. If anybody wants to ask me any questions on there, might take me a little while, a little while to, to get to them, but, but I, I'll get to all of them, yeah. Wow. Throwing down, yeah, I, man. He's th- responded to every message. A, a lot of people tell me to stop doing that because it takes a lot of time. But I mean, just, as long as I can continue to do it, I'm going to continue to do it. Yeah, you're, you're a hardworking guy. I appreciate that. And especially that, that concept of, you know, some suffering is good. And if everything's handed to us, and I mean, look, you're, you're, a, you're a person of the, the age group. Are you called a millennial, right? You're 30, right? Yeah, I think yeah, so. So, yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a, a widespread criticism of this age group from sort of being the entitled and having the helicopter parents around and trying to fight your battles for you. And then, you know, you're a guy who kind of departed that. Yeah, I'd like to get some some closing comment there from like, you, you describe yourself coming from this random, small, Midwestern town kind of conservative scene, and you kind of broke out of that mold. And I'm wondering if like that was, would you attribute that to assorted life experiences? Or was this sort of your destiny from the from the from the start, and you have a, 
your, your twin brothers there selling tires in, in the hometown and happy as can be. I mean, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that I've kind of been wired like this from the beginning, but also I think that as with anybody, I, you know, had being super unhealthy, overweight when I was younger, a lot of other reasons, like a lot of trauma when I was younger, developed some defense mechanisms and those ended up being tools that I've been able to use now. And so just looking at that, of, of working through that and removing the, I'd say, the reactionary element of, of trauma and, and what you develop from it and looking at it more of like, okay, now I have this tool of which it used to be a defense mechanism that I can use more surgically. And I think that my intensity of the ability to focus and, and handle suffering and, and turn that into a positive thing is, is I think one of those things that sucked when I was younger, obviously, but, but now is a, is a thing that I can use as tool so grateful for that well said man turning adversity into opportunity anthony gustin thanks for joining me i appreciate the conversation thanks for having me so chris kelly nourish balance thrive we're we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's primal kitchen uh, condiments on the table it's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the primal kitchen wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she so she loves those sort of, we love them as well. We have uh we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the the ranch, um the avocado oil we use all the time. And and so, you know, that's completely genuine and I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the arse out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park as they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure. 